0: hello and welcome to decarbonize the clean energy podcast from fresh energy Fresh Energy is a Minnesota nonprofit working to speed our state's transition to a clean energy economy. My name is Joe Olson. I do communications here at Fresh Energy, and I'm here today to share with you a recording of the final webinar in our Intersection of Energy and Community four-part series. In this discussion, Fresh Energy's Margaret Cherney Hendrick, Lead Director of Energy Transition, is joined by Margaret Garasha, of Elevate and Keith Kinch of Block Power to discuss electricity instead of gas and specifically how communities can embrace efficiency and electrification and avoid new fossil gas infrastructure. Special thank you to Great River Energy for sponsoring today's conversation. And with that, let's begin. Welcome to everyone for joining us today for part
1: four, which represents our final installment of Fresh Energy's Intersection of Energy and Community webinar series. We're delighted to have you join us this afternoon. I'm Margaret Cherney Hendrick, Lead Director of the Energy Transition Department at Fresh Energy. Uh, Fresh Energy is a Minnesota-based nonprofit working towards a vision of a just, prosperous, and resilient future powered by a shared commitment to carbon neutrality. Greenhouse gas emissions are increasing at the fastest rate across the building sector in Minnesota. Since 2005, emissions have increased by 32% from residential buildings and 15% from commercial buildings, primarily as a result of on-site combustion of fossil fuels like natural gas. As we tackle how best to reduce these emissions, we know that embracing energy efficiency and electrification and avoiding new fossil gas infrastructure will be really critical parts of the solution. To address the carbon emissions from existing buildings, we must drive aggressive, deep energy retrofits, coupled with the conversion of appliances like furnaces, air conditioners, waters heat, water heaters, stoves, and clothes dryers to renewable carbon-free electricity, and that's especially true in cold climates like in the Midwest. We're hoping that everyone who joins us today and listens to the recording of today's webinar we're calling Electricity Instead of Gas will walk away with an understanding of the strategies and tools to make that happen, especially in multifamily buildings. Together we need to grow a shared commitment to strategies beyond business usual energy efficiency and the continued acceptance of natural gas as the least cost fuel source. Over the next hour, our panel of experts will discuss how communities can embrace efficiency and electrification as well as avoid new fossil gas infrastructure. But before we dive into our conversation today, I would like to extend a shout out and a thank you to all of our promotional partners who helped spread the word about the event today. Thank you to AIA, CERTs, Climate Generation, Midwest BDC, Minnesota Electrical Association, MinSea, Pollen, RMI, Sierra Club, the Nature Conservancy and WSB. I also want to recognize Great River Energy, our sponsor for today's conversation. Thank you. Now, switching gears, I am very excited to be joined today by Margaret Garasha, Associate Director at Elevate with offices based in the Midwest, and Keith Kinch, co founder and general manager of New York City based Block Power. We're going to start out with a panel discussion and then move into a QA for the last 15 minutes of the webinar. Many of you submitted questions in advance, but if you didn't, please use the QA box at the bottom of your screen, not the chat box, to send in your questions and we'll do our best to keep um, to get to as many as we can. We're going to be covering a lot today, so I want to dive right in. So starting with you, Keith, could you please tell us a little bit more about yourself, about block power, about your journey in clean energy and uh, building electrification.
2: Sure, sure. Uh, hello everyone, uh, Keith Kinch, uh, as mentioned, co-founder and general manager of Block Power. Uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, parents are from Barbados. Um, spent a lot of time around social justice and organizing as a child and still doing it today, but around climate justice. Um, in terms of Block Power, uh, we're a clean tech startup. We are entering our eighth year in existence, and what we do utilizing our software platform is we provide engineering analysis, we finance projects, we do project management for all our clean energy projects, and at the end, we also do measurement and verification to to confirm optimal performance of of the new systems, and also work with building owners or governments or utilities on, on savings. Um, We've completed over 1,400 projects in the last eight years, many of them in New York State, um, and we're currently working in 25 other cities across the country, and happy to be on.
1: Great. And turning to you, Margaret, could you tell us a bit more about your role at Elevate and the work that you guys are doing across the Midwest?
3: Yeah, thanks so much um, for having us, Margaret, and the the Fresh Energy team, um, and Keith for being here too. I'm excited to to get going with this conversation. I'm Margaret Garasha. I'm Associate Director for Research and Innovation at Elevate. We're a Midwest-based nonprofit um, that we have a a national footprint. We're primarily known for implementing utility energy efficiency programs focused on affordable multifamily housing. So we've retrofitted over 60,000 units of affordable housing across the country. Um, we also run electricity uh, real-time pricing programs where folks can pay the real price instead of the flat rate for electricity and therefore shift and save money and uh, reduce carbon emissions. And we do energy planning as well. Um, but where I sit in the research and innovation group, we incubate new ideas and try to get them to scale. So a big focus right now is on electrification, how we marry that with our other program offerings, and how we make sure that it's equitable and works for the people and the building stock that we care the most about, which are namely folks with lower incomes who rent. Um, So really excited to to dig a little deeper today. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you both so much for
1: spending your time with us today and uh, having this conversation. It's an important one. Um, We're really on the precipice of a really large energy transition and mounting this in the Midwest is of particular interest. I know to a lot of our listeners today, and uh, especially given, you know, the challenges of cold climate and very different political circumstances in the Midwest as compared to the East and the West Coast. Um, so jumping into some questions here, um, you both are helping communities to embrace electrification, especially in multifamily housing, which is often known as um, a pretty difficult uh, part of the housing uh, sector to embrace, uh, just in terms of retrofits. So um, you know, historically the cost of gas, especially natural gas has been cheaper than electricity. Um, so given this challenge, how do we scale electrification? Um, especially when the price of electricity today is higher. So, Keith, let's start with you.
2: Sure. So, I, I think the sh- very short answer is investment in infrastructure. Um, that's the only reason why gas now is considered cheaper than electricity. Um, there's an antidote I use, and you know, there's a time along. There's a time many years ago where there was an uprising anger over using oil in buildings. People preferred wood and putting their hands over wood because it felt better. But then we made major national infrastructure investments in oil and we became a fossil fuel country. Then when we shifted more to gas, we did the same thing again. We doubled down on gas infrastructure. So the thing we have to do moving forward and we're seeing it in many locations in the country is to invest in renewable energy, in our electrical grids to, to lower the costs. Um, but that's just financial costs They're, you know, when we think about costs of electricity versus gas, there's also an equity issue and there's a health issue. Um, we're still in the midst of a pandemic in this country. And we know more than ever, clean air is important. Fossil fuels do not provide clean air and they could be an exacerbating factor for asthma well or other, other items And you know, in in airborne um, areas so electricity is going to make it much easier to make sure we're safer and cleaner so that's how i think we, we we deal with the current pricing of electricity versus heat what is the cost of health what is the cost of safety
1: that's great so really thinking more holistically about how we're subsidizing current fuels today and then also the implications the real equity implications of public health and the emissions that we see from these fuels so that's great. So building off of that, Margaret, what's your perspective? And I think we have a couple of slides to share for you as well.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with what Keith said. I think we have to make the case and um, capture and articulate all the non-energy benefits associated with this work. So totally agree with that. And yeah, if we want to put the, the slide up, um, the way Elevate approaches um, this topic is that we we don't approach electrification in a vacuum, right? We have to combine it with these other tools um, that are proven, right? So energy efficiency is always gonna be the first step um, and the cheapest step, right? Reduce the load um, that you have to electrify as much as you possibly can. There's lots of proven ways to do that, um, particularly in the multifamily space. Then we electrify. Then we look at renewables, ideally at the site um, and distributed energy resources for um, that building. And then we can manage those loads. So I mentioned that we run real-time pricing programs. We can shift and save. There's some really innovative work happening um, with hot water heaters um, that can kind of uh, heat water at off peak times um, and then distribute that throughout the day um, based on customer demand. So these all have to happen in concert and we have to kind of integrate that conversation and to bring in Keith's point, we have to be talking about health at the same time, right? And resiliency, um, we're adding cooling for folks. That's so a, um, a huge benefit that we have to talk about. Um, but Margaret, you, you raise a really good point that the costs, the fundamentals are a big challenge. Um, so Joe, if you could go to the next slide. Um, I'm including this as, a, as an example from one of our projects so this is a multifamily pre-war building in Chicago, currently has gas individual furnaces and stoves, central gas, hot water, and gas laundry. And so the what I'm showing is just electrification. So even though I was just saying we have to integrate those other strategies, I just wanted to isolate the point about the energy and cost changes when you simply electrify. Um, so this is going to cold climate, uh, ducted heat pumps, and we can achieve a 61% Um, site energy reduction, which is incredible. Um, And that's because of the technology, right? How efficient these heat pumps are. And I just note that we're adding the blue slice, we're adding cooling, We didn't have cooling before. Um, So that's incredible. But then the way that translates into costs, we just don't see, we don't see that as much. You see about a 3% reduction. And that's different for tenants versus owners because of the way those end uses um, are split out. And this particular um, utility, this is Comed, offers an all-electric rate. So a rate for customers who have electric heating. And we can get 8% savings. Um, but we're not coming anywhere near that 61% um, savings on the energy side. And that's because we choose to keep the cost of natural gas and other fossil fuels low. Um, we as a society subsidize um, that as a fuel. And um, So my point is that what I'm showing on the left is empirical, right? That's data um, and that's real. And what I'm showing on the right is what we as a society have have decided the cost should be and the value should be um, in this transition and what we can absolutely change going forward.
1: Wow, this is really great um, data to be taking a look at especially um, data that's being collected in the Midwest, where we think a lot about heating reliability, and uh, we're also thinking a lot about, as you mentioned, Margaret, um, load growth. As we mount this energy transition, we electrify end uses. We're really going to have to be um, intentional about sustainably growing that load, so we don't overburden our grid. So, with those points in mind, you know, Margaret, your work with Elevate has allowed you to really you know, push the envelope here and start to pilot some of this electrification work, especially across affordable multifamily homes. Could you talk a little bit more about your experiencing with transitioning a multifamily building on to clean electricity?
3: Yeah, where to start? Um, there's so many things that, that we could unpack. So <clears throat> there's a particular path we wanna go down either from you, Margaret or Keith, or from the audience, um, please bring that forward. But I'll just talk about a couple of the big kind of themes that have emerged for us. One is meeting owners where they're at, right? There's a lot of just confusion or questions or skepticism about electrification. Why would I do this now if I don't have to? Or uh, I'm watching these gas bands coming. I'm really worried there's gonna be a stick um, and not a carrot for me to comply with that. How do I figure this out for my portfolio? So that's been a big thing is just looking at their buildings, their benchmarking data, and understanding how we can help and how we can design approaches um, that meet the affordable building stock where it is today. Um, And it's facing a lot of challenges, right? The pandemic, a lot of our owners, um, rent rolls are down, tenants are struggling. So we're trying to do this work um, in a challenging context anyway. Um, The other big kind of topic I'd highlight is being really sensitive about cost shifts from uh, master metered, buildings um, that might be switching to like an individual heat pump. So in other words, we're going from the owner kind of covering those utility costs and passing on those costs via rents or via utility allowances um, to tenants potentially paying for a new end use that they directly that they did not directly pay for prior. Um, So the last thing we want to do is increase utility costs for tenants of affordable housing, right? So it's just, in some ways that's the central mission here is we know heat pumps work, um, we know how to do energy efficiency, we, we know how to implement these tools, but how do we put the people first and understand um, how does a tenant who gets LIHEAP support for their gas bill, how do we make sure that that um, help follows them when they move over to all electric? it might seem like a detail when you're managing like a huge construction project and and a retrofit, but that is the most important question for the tenant, right? So I think those are the two things I'd highlight to start, but happy to talk more about, about any one of those.
1: That's great. And you raise a really important point, you know, the financing on how we do this energy transition in the building sector, especially across affordable multifamily buildings, is going to be really, really important to keep track of. And I don't think anyone who is having the discussion about how to transition buildings to clean electricity today thinks that we should be doing this on the backs of individual ratepayers or building owners. So I know, Keith, you uh, guys at Block Power have been really thinking critically about financing structures that could help to alleviate some of these um, barriers. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your pilot projects and, and the financing um, packages that you've been able to deploy.
2: Sure. So first, everything Margaret said, totally agree with. And I, I think the one point that people take for granted. What she stated was, you know, meeting the owner where they're at. I think you have to do that every time. Um, yeah, you know, one of the barriers to to scalability is, is financing, um, especially in low to moderate income neighborhoods where the buildings that need the most work are sitting in those neighborhoods and they've been historically underserved, underbanked. And now we're asking them to pay, f- pay for these upgrades, whether to, to Margaret's point, it's a stick or a carrot or a mixture of both. So the one thing we do is, you know, we handhold the customer from beginning to end of the process, um, especially on the financing. And the financing comes in two ways. One, there are utility incentives, which you know many of us on this panel may know about and we live in this space, but the average person is not going to take time to figure out what utilities have which incentives when and where the paperwork goes and when to email which person. So, you know, we do all that in house with the building owner, the portfolio manager. Second is the actual cost of the project. Um, If it costs 100,000, 50,000, $10,000, even before COVID and before we had this economic um, struggle in the country, not everyone has the ability to pay little, if not any of the upfront costs. So, what bar has created over the last two and a half years is a no money down lease option, very similar to, to leasing a car where a building owner or a portfolio can say, Hey, I need to put in solar, solar batteries, heat pumps. Um, but I don't have the upfront capital. Well, great, you know, no money down, we'll put in the systems, and your monthly payment would be 20 to 70% less than what you're paying for an annual. Energy costs now and and also operating and maintenance, right? Many building owners, but the portfolio managers, especially in this space, are going to be reactive. No one's thinking about their boiler or their heating systems or their cooling systems twenty four seven. They think about it when it goes down or to Robert's point when a tenant has a concern, and then you go in there and you're concerned about comfort. Um, so we've completed, you know projects in new York, New York State and other states using our Nomidal lease option. and it's worked. People have, lowered their carbon emissions, they've lowered their any en- their energy usage. And the one part that we don't talk about in this space is also it's job creation, right? Someone's got to install those systems or kick, you know, kick out the old systems. And that creates another layer of equity in, in historically underserved communities.
1: Great, And I'm glad you brought up workforce. I think that's a really important piece of this transition, both when we're talking about, you know, as we have been air source heat pumps, um, as well as ground source heat pumps. I think they're um, uh, two really important uh, areas of, of workforce development that we could dig into here. And so um, we will continue that conversation. We're going to kind of dive into a few more exploratory questions here. So um, Sort of zooming out a little bit, you know, what does a just energy transition look like in the building sector? Um, moving communities off fossil energy and onto clean electricity, again, in terms of workforce, energy security, um, and designing enabling policy. So uh, Keith, let's start with you.
2: Well, I think in regards to workforce, right now there's a labor shortage in general on who can actually install these new systems so the first step is how do we scale the workforce so that we can scale installing the systems um and that is a direct um uh, it's a direct correlation to, to putting together you know a just economy around energy efficiency um historically you know the construction industry labor force has been predominantly white male um, and as we look to diversify uh, we need to be very clear on what that looks like and who is part of that next generation of, of workforce. And the other part that, you know, we're not talking about is, you know, a large part of the current workforce, they're retiring, um, they're aging out. And many of the children of the folks in the workforce don't have interest in doing construction. So that intellectual property that a construction manager or, you know, Mr. A or Mrs. B's construction firm that goes away as well, right? So we're losing some institutional knowledge. So how do we try to maintain that or keep that one and then two as we train, you know, women, people of color, underserved communities. How do we make sure that they're ready to not just, you know, get on a job and work, which is great, but also create their own companies and also be able to be a contractor and build generational wealth. So that's 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 the goal back to policy. Right. Then there needs to be policy in place to make sure folks have access to capital, understand access to incentives, um, access to understanding even how to go through the process of getting you know binding insurance to complete a project or go to, to, to be permitting which is a pain point that we still deal with that block power um and, that, and that's that's the best way to do it. it has to be top you know bottom up get trained people put in positions to work but also the policies have to match you know if a contractor can't get 90 grand or getting a loan to do any level of work nothing gets done um, and then finally the cost goes down Right when, when when Margaret talks about installing these systems, that cost goes down dramatically because if you have ten to fifteen contractors that can do instead of five, that cost goes down because there's competition. That everyone knows anyone. That everyone shows up in the same Mercedes Benz to put in the systems. So it's very helpful um, to, to move to move on that.
3: Great, um, and Margaret, what's your take? Yeah, totally agree. It was like nodding my head and talking on mute, Keith, while you are talking or agreeing on mute. Um I agree. I'd highlight a couple things on the contractor workforce side. One is just there's a there's an inherent kind of bias we're seeing towards larger firms. Um so Keith mentioned there's a lack of of labor. And I would just add to that and compliment that it's um, I think it's really on the smaller. Uh, firm side. So the larger kind of mechanical firms, they're doing heat pumps and VRF, particularly in new construction, Um, but they are these kind of legacy white, um, you know, legacy organizations. So there's kind of like an intra workforce um, equity consideration here. And we have to make sure that the smaller, more local shops are brought in and know how to do this work. Um, So totally agree with everything that Keith said. One of the things that Elevate has had some success in doing is helping smaller and more diverse contractors with back office support. So just helping them build out um, their invoicing and how do they, and this is, you know, can be specific to utility programs, but how do they navigate all the paperwork? Um, But I think there's similar constraints with electrification. There's different permitting processes um, that they're gonna need to become familiar with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The last thing I'd highlight is the manufacturers. So the manufacturers have great Um, line of visibility into the workforce, right? Um, Some manufacturers have certifications where the, you know, if you ask them, hey, who can install uh, a heat pump? They'll they'll give you three names. Um, But again, it does tend to be these kind of incumbents. Um, And so we can work connecting those dots. We can connect the local diverse contractors with the manufacturers and vice versa, make sure they're getting trained up on the latest equipment and that they're on those lists when the manufacturer is recommending um, folks who can install a heat pump, for example. And then I want to pick up the cost point, Um, far and away our biggest cost in our projects is labor. Um, And I think we're seeing a lack of competition, agree with Keith there, but we're also seeing just some risk pricing, right? the different trades, first of all, the number of trades that are involved in building electrification is amazing and exciting and a talking point that we should all be talking about. Um, you need a plumber, you need an electrician, you need a mechanical, you need, you need general um, trades because like if you're swapping in a new electric stove, you need someone to come in and run that conduit and then drywall and paint, right? There's just so many opportunities to bring... Um, workers in and pay them good high paying um, wages. But to my point about um, risk, I think this is a newer area. So we're seeing some pricing come in. That's like, I don't, you know I've never done a conduit run that long and electrified a hot water heater. And um, so we we do expect and anticipate that that um, In the coming years, very quickly will will come down and just help on all sides. Help drive competition. Help help us get more volume um, and keep expanding this work.
1: Great, and I think you know we've talked a little bit about this, but I wonder if you both could touch on some of the enabling policy that we might need to put into place or advocate for to kind of drive this transition as it relates to workforce, as it relates to you know market transformation. Um, you know, we've seen energy transitions mounted before, I think the power sector is a good example. Um, and, you know, we've made some mistakes in the past, you know, folks who are most affected by policy have not been at the table to have a voice in making that policy. So I wonder if you guys could both just, um, reflect on the dynamics there and, and what we can do to make sure we don't repeat the same mistakes we've made in the past.
2: Sure. I I think to your oh, I'm sorry <laughs> I think to your first point you have to put frontline communities first I think the last two and a half years between our health crisis and you know where we are on energy efficiency and climate change we understand you know who needs to be on the front of the line in regards to the benefits of what we're trying to do um I think there are three policy I think the three policy points that, that need to happen one um there needs to be concerted effort by utilities to incentivize um, elect- electrification, right? Not rebates incentivize upfront, right? It needs to be upfront so that folks know what they're getting and how much the, you know, how much cost is coming off right away from, from a given upgrade. Um, I think two, there needs to be more mechanisms around technical guidance. Right. To, to Margaret's point, you know when you're working with four or five union shops and you may have two or three buildings, um, the ability to allow a building owner to navigate that process needs to be more streamlined um, and that can be done policy wise right how we go through department of building permitting, um, how does a building get to a point where they know what they need to do the, f- the third one which is you know People don't like, you know, for all the carrots we talk about, it's got to get a stick, right? Some people need a little nudge. Um, and in New York City, we have a couple of nudges that I think are great to utilize as a base point to get our policies done. So in New York, every building has a letter grade from A to F. Um, so, you know, like many people, we get excited to go to a restaurant. But if you eat at a restaurant, you live in a C plus building or a C plus home. It doesn't matter around health. So there's a, there's a conversation around, you know, letting building owners know, hey, this is a bad building, what are you doing? And then there are fines that come with it. Um, and then there are deadlines on how long gas can be utilized. Um, to Margaret's point about the fear of like, if there's a gas ban, what do I do next? So, you know, New York City, they're looking to, you know, ban gas and new, new construction by 2025, right? And what does that mean for existing buildings and others? So that all has to happen at the same time. It sounds like a lot, but it, But if it does, that means that that's how far behind we are, right? Uh, on the things we have to do. And then finally, we have to make sure that to Margaret's point, you know, the legacy organizations can't run it, it can't be the same five, six, seven big companies. It has to be the mom and pop contractors. It has to be the nonprofits and advocacy groups on the ground that have toiled for years, with limited resources to get this done. And now there, there are resources coming and, and it's allocated appropriately.
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd highlight a couple of things. Um, I think Illinois has had some success, but also some learnings about how to do this with the Future Energy Jobs Act and with Illinois Solar for All. One of the big learnings is and we saw this with um, recovery funds during the Obama years too. Is actually, you know, you don't want to train people up and then not have a pipeline of work. And so I think that's a critical piece. And you know, there's a lot of excitement and talk about how there might be some federal dollars coming through various um, streams that are currently being negotiated in D.C. And so I think we all recognize that we we a want the workforce. be there but we want the converse to be true right like we we don't want to train up um, a workforce and have people pivot from you know traditional electrician um, jobs to electrification and then not have projects for them Um, and there are certain policy um, things that you can include um, to make sure that those connections are made that projects that get certain funding streams are tapping workforce trainees from programs and just make those connections um really, really salient. But I, I agree with Keith that we need, we probably need carrots um, and sticks uh, to get where we need to go. And that workforce has to be integrated along the way um, in those policy conversations to make sure we don't, yeah, repeat, repeat some of the the mistakes of the past.
1: Great. Thank you guys for your insights here. So If we're now kind of transitioning to talking about, you know, the Midwest specifically, you know, it's cold here. Um, We've got a very different political system. We've got an electric grid that sees peak demand for electricity that's being um, supplied to air conditioners in the summer. Um, So with electrifying our buildings, we're expecting that peak demand now to shift to summertime or excuse me, to wintertime driven by heating. Um, so, to you guys, what does a sustainable and reliable transition in multifamily housing look like in the Midwest? So, Keith, let's start with you.
2: Well, I think it starts with understanding which buildings are in the most need to make the switch from fossil fuels, right? Whether it is based on the system, of system, and based on geography. That's one. Two, once we identify that, which many utilities and governments may have already in the Midwest, um, having a concerted effort with dollars behind it, real dollars, whether it's state and to Margaret's point, some federal dollars come coming down, hopefully, um, to make that part of a, a large scale program, right? If we're gonna, to my earlier point, invest and buy-in on, on the infrastructure and electrification, this is how, right? And for many folks, I understand that the term climate change and other things can be very polarizing and turn people off, but this is about two things then. It's a, it's a, it's a job component, it's a job stimulus component. If we, if we swap out these old systems, for new systems, we're creating jobs. Two, it's a health component. You know, how do we keep people healthy now and moving forward? Um, and then three, we have to build an infrastructure. We can't have an older infrastructure uh, that's trapped in the 20th century the Midwest otherwise. So, um already mentioned Illinois. Um, I know there's some conversations in other states as well. Um, and obviously nothing is, could be cutter, but that's those are the first key steps. And it starts from the top, you know, from the, on the state level and then we get down to the city level. Um, because if we're not only on the state level, we're just going to have four or five cities like many states now that are doing X and they will have other cities that are buying into gas right and that doesn't help long term what we're trying to
3: do. Yeah, I think we, but uh, I don't want to underscore um, or I do want to underscore that the, this is a real challenge in the cold climate. Um, and in our context, I think we have to look to local experts like fresh like many folks on the call to understand what is the building stack like. Um, what needs the most weatherization and how uh, Chicago has a lot of brick housing. Um, so we can't do overcladding. I know Minnesota, you, you all might have more frame, right? So it's like, I think we can't um, kid ourselves that there's going to be a one size fits all solution. Um, and, and we also need to acknowledge that we probably do need backup heat of some kind um, in the upper Midwest, I'm of the mind that that can be electric resistance, um, which is in the newer models of heat pumps is integrated into the system. So the occupant or the tenant does not need to mess with, you know, on a cold day, um, the backup, it's 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 automatic. I know there are folks probably in, in the chat um, advocating for some kind of gas um, backups. I think that's a whole thread of conversation um, that we could, we could pull on more. I also think we have to acknowledge that um, if the grid goes down in the winter, um, that's a problem for anybody that has a furnace with a fan. Um, that's a problem for the heat, for a lot of folks anyway in the winter. So again, we can't have a siloed conversation about this without also talking about grid resilience, right? You can't talk about electrification um, without, without that. Those two go hand in hand. Um, so again, not, not being naive about um, the need to do that. But I just want to emphasize that if you, you know, if you talk to a building science engineer and you're committed to doing uh, weatherization while you do electrification, they will tell you that if the system is designed right, the technology is here today to meet the heating load, even in a polar vortex. And so I think part of what I want to communicate to this group is that we don't need to wait. The time for waiting is over. We need to start doing this, we need to start implementing, we need to start looking to those local experts of understanding what's the specific context for this market or this geography or this climate and then we just need to start doing. Um, we are a little bit behind other markets so we can look to California and some of their learnings about the duck curve which is you know really specifically about solar offtake in the afternoons, um, but, but we can learn from those mistakes. And as we think about DERs integrated with heat pumps, um, but the technology is here. It's time to just start electrifying. Great, and then I just wanted to quickly
1: dig in a little bit more specifically on affordable housing. So, can you just talk about a few of the nuances that we should be aware of in doing a sustainable, just transition, and affordable multifamily housing?
3: Yeah, I'll take I'll take that one first. Um, I mean, I think we've we've hit on some of them, but it has to be kind of tenant first. We have to think about the whole tenant experience from beginning to end. Um, we have to engage tenants and talk to them, <laughs> with them, hear from them. Um, we have to educate about heat pumps um, and the added cooling benefits. Um, we we need to make sure that this is not uh, a new approach that's just being put on and dropped on right I think we don't want to pass something like a building performance standard that has a requirement for affordable housing and those folks have not been at the table right so we need process equity when we're designing policies that are going to affect affordable housing Um, but I think we need to really just think about again those cost shifts because I'm confident that that technology can work for affordable housing, that we're gonna achieve those carbon reductions. Um, And then getting back to the workforce conversation too, we wanna employ folks from communities where we're electrifying, right? So we have to like bring those threads of the conversation together at the same time.
2: Absolutely. Um, I I think, you know, what you hear from many affordable housing folks are you know the numbers don't add up right it's the bottom line um and they mean that from their perspective from the tenants right i know for many many locations there's a certain percentage of threshold a tenant can pay on their energy bill and that varies obviously state to state um so they're aware of that they're also aware of what they can charge for rent so that's how they think about items there's two things. There's three things that you can deal with. One, obviously, change how much money can be allocated to affordable housing, right? To make sure the same investment you made to build affordable housing from a city or state or federal level, you can add on. You can add on to that so that some of that alleviation is done. To Barbara's point, on a tenant level as well as the building owner level or portfolio level. Two, Barbara, um, a point about uh, weatherization and other systems. You know, one of the things we talk to building owners about you know, if they have a concern about increase of cost for tenants on electricity, you know, think about community solar, think about solar in the building. Like, the, you know, if the building is an asset, then you should think about it as a total asset, right? How do you make sure it works top to bottom? Just putting in a brand new system to say, oh, here's some w money splits. That's great, but if the windows are 25 years old, it doesn't matter if you put in a new system. Or if you're, to, to Marcus point, if you're low calculations, the office not going to work. So if you're going to make that investment to go from gas to uh, gas to electricity or just all fossil fuels in general, take the whole building, make the whole building at that level. And also, work like you said, work with the tenants, right? Certain tenants um, have, and to your point, have heating concerns and cooling concerns. What does that look like? Um, the one thing, you know, which is very nuanced, you know, in New York city, you have a lot of air conditioners sitting out of windows, right? So if you um, go to air source heat pumps, they are nowhere. you know, essentially you're removing air conditioning from, from windows, which of course, what does that mean? You know, it's, it's cost effective, but also how does that change the structure of the tenant's life, right? If I'm used to turning on the AC and standing by it and, you know, getting full, cool, now what does it mean if I have a two zone system in my three bedroom apartment, what does that look like? So once again get to Marcus' point, like, are you talking to tenants? Are you talking to the folks on the ground? Are you thinking about customer education, right? So they'll feel like, oh, there's new systems in. here's a remote, go figure it out. That's that's not going to work and it's not going to be adopted properly. You're going to be like, I'm used to X. So um, yeah, d- definitely agree on that.
1: Great. Okay. We're going to do our final round of questions here. We're going to do it lightning round. So real quick responses from you guys. Um, We're going to get into a discussion of barriers and opportunities. So what is it going to take for us to do better, to speed this transition, meet the urgency that we know is um, pressing down on us with climate change? We're not meeting our greenhouse gas reduction goals in the Midwest. So what can groups um, like on the call today do? So... Um, we've touched on federal investment quite a bit already, but can you both uh, quickly speak to some of the opportunities you see for leveraging federal dollars towards creating a more equitable, sustainable, and healthy building sector?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we have to help when the when that money arrives. We have to help make sure make sure that uh, cities, states, localities uh, have a pipeline, have partnerships, um, they're able to spend that money and they're able to, you know, spend it equitably on the right types of programs and in the right um, communities. And everyone on the call can think about how that applies um, in their own work and in their own deck of the woods. And then I think we can all be advocating um, and talking about these integrated solutions, that none of these things can happen in a vacuum. Um, We're not meeting our goals, so we have to stop subsidizing Fossil and we have to start spending money on these these integrated approaches that we know
2: work. Yeah, I agree. I would quickly add, look at all the success you've had across the work you've done and utilize that as a way to build the plan, right? Many times people say, this sounds great. It's a great idea. And you're like, no, it's not a great idea. We're doing it. It's done. Now we're going to scale. Right This is not like we're thinking about making a cake we made three cakes already. they taste great. we need to make another thousand cakes. I'm a cake person, sorry so I mean that's that's how we have to think about it around energy efficiency, like you know replicate what's been successful and just add dollars and add the right voices to it.
1: great, scaling. I love that. so real quick, then, what are the barriers to innovation as you see them? What does it take to be a leader in this energy transition?
2: Um, I would say. Um, technology, having the right technology and market is right. It's, it's, technology is here now, but understanding the right technology for the right building, the right systems. So we're not moving people to the wrong systems. I think that's important. That's on the folks on the ground. It's on the manufacturers to um, financing. It's got to be flexible, right? We can't have people concerned about losing their homes over upgrading systems. And we need people to that access. Gotta have access, that have access.
3: I think cost effectiveness and our, our collective mindset and fixation on that is one of our biggest barriers um, weatherization poses some huge opportunities and challenges to make uh, electrification move forward without being stuck in some of these cost effectiveness frameworks, in particular, the fact that you can't take into account the fixed customer charge of gas, um, cause it's just that something they ever thought about um, when they were thinking about energy efficiency and obviously with fuel switching that makes a huge impact. So it's things like that. Um, and same with the utility context. So I agree Keith that like that's the utility funding model is probably the best train we have going um, but we have to figure out a way out of this cost effectiveness um, framework or else electrification is just gonna run into a buzzsaw. Yeah, couldn't agree more. We have a lot of work
1: to do to reimagine our cost-effectiveness framework. We've talked about non-energy benefits, you know, public health, taking full account of the emissions, you know, versus on-site and source. And I think, you know, that has implications for both electricity as well as the um, current gas sources that we're using. So, um, really great insights. Thank you guys so much. Um, we are going to pivot now um, to the Q and A session. Um, And just a quick reminder, I see that there are some great questions coming into the Q&A box. So please go ahead, keep dropping those questions in. You can use the upvote function to um, really highlight uh, questions that are of interest to you. but before we start the q and I would like to quickly remind everyone that if you missed any of the four parts of our Intersection of Energy and Community webinar series, you can tune in on Decarbonize, the clean energy podcast, which you can find on any podcasting app or at fresh-energy.org backslash decarbonize. You will also be able to find a link to a YouTube recording of this webinar complete with slides on our website at fresh-energy.org slash Backslash publications. And while we're on the subject of events, registration is now open for our virtual benefit breakfast on October 14th, featuring Keith's colleague, award-winning climate tech entrepreneur Danelle Baird, CEO of New York City-based Block Power, an organization proving that businesses can tackle carbon pollution while making a profit and creating family-sustaining jobs. You can go ahead and register at fresh-energy.org backslash benefit breakfast. And finally, this is our first public announcement. We're very excited. So here live on this webinar that Fresh Energy has just launched a new gas decarbonization program led by our newest hire, Joe Dammel, formerly working at the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency and also the Minnesota Attorney General's office. And... We are hitting the ground running on a new Future of Gas docket opening at the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission. For all those energy wonks out there, this is docket number 21-565. Stay tuned to our website in the coming days for an official announcement. Okay, we're gonna move to Q&A now. Um, I will look through all of the questions and start fielding them. Let's get started with a question from Liz. And I think this is one that both of you will be able to take a crack at here. So Liz asks, um, low-income households will be the last to transition off fossil fuels simply because they do not have the money to afford to upgrade their electrical wiring and change from gas or oil to electricity. Thus they risk becoming stranded on the gas utility uh, as more non-low-income customers electrify, have any of you given any thought to how existing low-income weatherization and home repair programs can be modified to enable carbon reduction and not just energy reduction? Great question.
3: I'll I'll start there. Um, yeah, yes, <laughs> we are thinking about this. I think the the feared gas utility death spiral is motivating much of Elevate's work. We do not want low-income folks to be left behind and um, paying the increasing fixed costs as, as customers flee um, the gas distribution system. So absolutely, um, I, I referenced weatherization earlier. There's so much we can do. I know that conversations are happening right now on the Hill about this. Um, how, do we, how do we tweak things? I'd highlight um, California Um, and New York state weatherization programs as having some innovative approaches to integrating heat pumps um, with solar into their measure packages. Um, But there's so much, I think it boils down to the way, um, well, first of all, weatherization uses a really old modeling system um, that's not supported anymore, actually. Uh, It's like an old iteration of Excel. And so I think that's an example of like, um, we should bring that into the the new, way of doing things and use the tools that we have and update the way that they like literally model their their measure packages and then getting back to the cost effectiveness there are a lot of things we can do um so that those uh the way those benefits get calculated don't tip the scale towards fossil
2: and further
3: electrification
2: uh, yes to the question and yes to Margaret's points um yeah we're we're fortunate in new york state Um, to have a great organization programs. Um, But also we're fortunate in the sense that the New York state government listens to the market in regards to how to scale and innovate. We're very fortunate for that. So yeah, on any given day, you know, members of the block car team we're talking to low to moderate income building owners and completing projects. And you're right, the two things that always come up, no matter what, are the the load calculations in a building, the electrical load in a building. If the building was built even in 1980, it can barely charge four cell phones and a laptop. Now we're asking it to heat and cool a building. And we work very closely with utilities on that. And, you know, part of our lease model is we we take all those costs into one. So it isn't like you're constantly getting a new bill. Like this is all done in one shot. Like this is the cost of the project, the end. And, and to Margaret's point again, you know, working with smaller to medium-sized contractors, being able to say, can you do this work? Are you trained? That also lowers the cost of the project as well. Um, and then finally, the incentives have to be increased. The only, once it, like Margaret said several times, and she's right, the only reason why gas is cheap is because the incentives, have has been incentivized to be cheap. <clears throat> if, we spent 30, if we spent 30% more of what we did to invest in gas, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So, I mean that is the goal you know that is how we get buildings that are considered to be last in line to move up to the front of the line um and we're seeing more you know in New York we're seeing it in california i I would even add Massachusetts, you know, I know they're redoing their um three year plan under Nat national grid um incentivizing e pumps um yeah and and that's it, it's the incentive you know that's that's the key. Um,
1: Great. Okay. Um, Moving to a question from Kelly uh, that came through at the time of registration. So is it practical to transition to electricity now before there is increased resilience of our distribution system? What if the grid goes down in the middle of winter? And let's focus this question using the Midwestern grid, because of course, as we know, where you get your electric supply really determines your resilience for questions like this. So who wants to take a swing
3: at this first? I'll start. Um, I mean, yes, I think earlier in conversation, we hit on um, grid resilience has to be part of this conversation. Um, I think there's a tendency to think like or model like we're going to flip a switch and thousands and thousands of heat pumps are going to be added um, at once, which would undoubtedly um, be a tricky thing um, for the grid to manage and that's just simply not going to happen. It's also why, why I'm motivated to to keep pushing on this work and keep scaling. Um, so, I, I mean, we are actively having this conversation with the electric utilities that we've worked with. Um, they they are all over it so without getting like too much into the weeds in the little time we have um the conversation is happening and there's so much to unpack there but i don't think it should be a barrier for any one individual or organization um in pursuing some of these
2: solutions yeah um, and I, i also you know the easy answer is say yes, and I agree with Margaret. The other answer is like, what type of building do you have? You know, the building stock, and what what is your <clears throat> what is your current loading usage, um, and what, it, what is the building being used for? Um, and, still, and now, we still have the technology to put you in the best position to, in that worst case scenario, right? Um, so yeah, I would tell you to do it now. Um, not just because you know not want to call and it sounds good. But also, you know, we don't know what comes on the line in regards to a stick from the city or the state or government, right? There's something that more in New York State, when we talk to building owners portfolios, they fear the stick more than the carrots right now. It's just like we waited, we waited, and now there's local 97, and now was local law 95, and now there's this law, and now I've got to check off this box, and now my, my building grades is C, and now I've got to incur 70 grand in fines that's only because they waited, they were waiting for something. And, and sometimes, you know, you've got to be the early adopter, you gotta be the leader, and you gotta be ahead of the curve on this. So um, I, I would say do it and, you know, work closely with folks like Margaret on the ground that like know know this in and out to get it done.
1: Yeah, and I'll just add, we've talked a lot about pairing energy efficiency work with electrification, especially in the Midwest. That's just so critically important. Um, both to sustainably grow that new demand on the grid, so that we aren't overtaxing it as we ramp up with this energy transition, but also recognizing that you know the building stock that we have today in the Midwest is nowhere near as energy efficient as it should be. As it is, folks are really strapped with um, pretty egregious energy bills. So. Uh, That is a big problem. So if we're mounting a transition where we're pairing energy efficiency um, with electrification, there's a lot of, um, I think, good data out there to demonstrate that with tighter building envelopes, you're keeping that heat in your building much more efficiently. So if there is an instance in which you lose power, it's not going to be as horrific (laughs) as if you're on a different energy source with an unweatherized house. So um, this is a, this is an energy transition about resiliency as much as it is about electrification. So I think that's important to note as well. And with MISO, you know, this is a grid that we rely on in the Midwest that has a lot of redundancy already built into it. Um, And so as we saw over this past winter, even with our polar vortex event where we saw the grid in Texas going down, we didn't have the same types of problems um, because of that way the grid is structured So um, let's move into lightning round. So I'm gonna ask for quick answers and I'll ask um, one or the other of you for these answers. Uh, So Margaret, this one's for you. um, And this is talking about backup gas and decarbonized gas. So can pursuing decarbonization of the natural gas supply by 30% via zero carbon hydrogen uh, generate off-peak, generated off-peak, be a valuable strategy to pursue concurrently with building electrification?
3: Uh, No, I mean, I would leave that to you, Margaret, and your your new colleague. Um, I think there are experts who are looking at, you know, lower carbon gas. I tend to be a skeptic there. I will say that we've had conversations with building owners about leaving in their radiators and their steam distribution so that in 10 years, maybe there'll be a low carbon option to to pick that up and use that again. Um, So the the door's open, um, I would say.
1: And I'll add 30% is just uh, a concentration of hydrogen in our current energy system. The pipes cannot handle that. 7% is the max that I've heard that you can mix in before you deal with the pipes breaking down from embrittlement. Um, Okay. So Keith, this is a question for you. In New York, who determines the building letter grade?
2: That's done through the department of buildings in partnership with um, the mayor's office. So when you walk on a beautiful block in New York and you see a bunch of A, Bs and Cs, it's department of buildings. And the, the building owner has a relatively good amount of time to figure out how to make that grade higher. Now, the one thing which is interesting about that law, if there isn't enough data to get a grade for a building, you get an automatic F. It's just like school, when you come in incomplete, you get an F. So a lot of buildings have Fs and, you know, it may be because they've not completed the, uh, their work or part enough data. So just something to think about.
1: Great. Okay. And then let's do last question here for... Um, Let's go with Margaret. So, can this is a question from Sean? Can inclusive on bill tariff based financing be helpful to expand access to affordable capital and enable renters to pay off the energy improvements on their utility bill with future tenants continuing to make the payments?
3: Yeah, I think on bill is definitely a tool in the toolbox. That's how I think about it. There's probably other financing um, approaches that we need to be able to leverage for different contexts, but absolutely on bills is part of the solution. Great.
1: Um, and we do have quite a few questions left here. So I know we're at time, but, um, I wonder if, um, Margaret and Keith would be generous enough to stay on for another couple minutes to get through some more of these questions. Okay. Absolutely. And for folks that do have to hop off, um, thank you so much for joining us today, and uh, we look forward to being in touch again. Um, please visit Fresh Energy's website for all of the resources that we've discussed today. So I will look through. Um, maybe this is a question for Keith from Gene. Um, has Block Power worked on any projects in Minnesota?
2: Um. I would double check. I know we have I know we have a number that we're planning to work on, um, and most of them actually are single family that are running on gas that I know for sure. And to Mark's point about the concern around having a backup system that has come up in conversations. Um, and, you know, but and for anything to work in Minnesota, you know, we I want to work with Elevate down to the of there and work with Fresh Energy in the Midwest. You know, the one thing we say at the company, you know, building owners trust other building owners, but also they trust their um, stakeholders in their communities. So I, I can say a lot of things and it's really nice. But if Margaret says it or, or if Margaret Fresh Energy says it, it goes a long way because they trust them more. And that's how we're going to scale. Um, but yeah, a lot of the projects we're looking at, they're smaller systems like, you know, um, three, four bedroom single family homes um that are looking to electrify more for zoning purposes and for comfort right you know they understand the cost of gas is cheaper but what's the point if you've got to turn the switch up to make sure the second bedroom is warm and then the 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 kitchen is burning right so um zoning has become a big issue in comfort
1: great okay this is a question from margaret from pat um and i think this uh, harkens back to the slides that you showed around um, energy and cost savings. So um, I think the conversation, the question is, would be better um, serve perhaps to use uh, source energy and carbon. Uh, site energy tends to hide the electricity generation and transmission footprint. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about The pros, cons, both on electric and fossil side of using um, site versus source energy.
3: Uh, I probably buried the lead that we're, um, the point of our pilot is carbon reduction. Um, And so that particular project, we're gonna achieve a 25% carbon reduction. So I agree that, you know, we look at both of course, um, but just the point I was trying to make was really around the costs, which are driven by the KWH and the therms, um, which is obviously then the analogous point is site energy, Um, but don't disagree. And obviously if this is a carbon um, strategy, we're taking into account the source um, generation associated with electricity. So yeah, totally agree.
1: And I'll just add, you know, a lot of the source energy calculations are pretty subpar even as it relates to fossil today. in as much as they're not taking into account similar to what, how we do line loss for electric uh, transmission, we're not taking into account the fugitive methane emissions that are lost across the gas system through gas leaks, which are highly carbon intensive because they're methane. And that's, you know, over 80 times more potent of greenhouse gas than CO2. So we have quite a bit of work to do to improve our measures of source energy as well. Okay, so... Um, this is a question, I think for both of you here. So from Lissa, I recognize that many in the energy world are now talking about electrification, but there seems to be a real gap between this conversation and what it feels like most families and households are asking for. Could you share more insights about strategies to bridge this gap?
3: I'm not convinced there's um, that gap. I mean, we, we talk to lower income folks who own their own homes, And they're really struggling um, with managing two utility bills. They're struggling with their gas bill, particularly in Chicago, where we have high fixed customer charges. And so we can meet them in the frame of that conversation and talk about how removing gas um, will mean they only have to manage one bill, will mean that their costs go down, um, and will mean that we will help bring these other solutions like weatherization and rooftop solar if their roof. Um, is appropriate for it and bring their total bill down even more so we can we can meet uh, folks where they're at I'm assuming the conversation you're highlighting the questioners highlighting is around for like affordability or just day-to-day you know households um, problems but I 100% agree with the premise that no households are sitting at their kitchen table talking about heat pumps <laughs> um, I think we we recognize that for sure
1: oh Keith you're on mute
2: Sorry, I, I agree. I think officially the rent moratorium in New York State expires, I think, Saturday. And that's on top of mind in regards to affordability, right? For tenants, for building owners, how do I make sure that this building is sustainable, right, financially? Otherwise, I think long-term as, you know, tenants think about finding new spaces, as building owners think about vacancies, how do you make your building appealing, right? If, if you're gonna charge a higher rent because you're running an old fossil fuel system that kind of put an extra strain on your pocket and you're thinking about carrying it off to the tenant that may not work, not just for legal purposes, just for in terms of getting a tenant to stay or even to want to commit to moving in. Um and then on the tenant side, um to our point, yeah, you know, it's um, for everyone, it's been a long year. But, you know, from the dollar states we work in, in Oklahoma, New York, um, folks had to make a lot of tough decisions the last year and a half on, on paying, you know, a bill or, you know, paying rent or buying food or someone got sick, you know. Uh, so it's on top of mind in regards to the to Marcus point. No one's saying at, at the dinner table, love those Douglas splits we saw driving by today, but they're thinking about, How do we lower costs and how do we live a better, efficient life? And it still comes back to electrification, Long term.
1: Great. Okay. I'm going to ask one more question and I am going to be pulling my MC card here and I'm going to ask one from my perspective Um, and I'd love to get both of you, um, your quick answers here. So what is the scale and pace of change needed to advance this energy transition in the building sector?
3: We have to go as fast as we can as equitably as we can without breaking anything so do no harm don't increase costs for folks um meet owners where they're at i come back to those principles and just go and keith how about yeah. you?
2: barry allen flash speed speed of light speed of time um we need to do it now to all the points margaret mentioned but also like we're in a unique window. I don't know where we're gonna have this amount of federal dollars coming down with the, the amount of states that are locked in thinking about this, with the amount of cities locked in thinking about this for the next five, six, years, six months, six years. So if, if, to Margaret's point, if we can go full speed without breaking anything. And this is the time, like yesterday. you know, I don't think ever I, folks can, I don't think we've ever had a chance to like use billions of dollars over two, three years to focus on like two key items that everyone is kind of like locked in on, which is like energy efficiency, infrastructure, job creation. It's all locked in. Let's just go, just give all the money to fresh energy and elevate some other some other folks too, and then like go from there. <laughs> Great. <laughs>
1: well, what a wonderful note to end on. Thank you both so much for your time, your expertise, sharing your thoughts and experience on Uh, your work in this space and what it takes to tackle the challenge we see in the building sector today. And thanks to everyone who have uh, tuned in uh, to join us for the conversation today and for our preceding three conversations in this webinar series. Uh, Please check out Fresh Energy's website for any other resources. And we wish you all the best for a great afternoon and look forward to being in touch soon. Thank you all so much.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the audio recording of our webinar. If you're hungry for more or want to get involved, visit fresh-energy.org. As Margaret mentioned during the webinar, we've recently announced the keynote speaker for our 2021 virtual benefit breakfast that we're calling Future Focus, the New Climate Economy. The breakfast will take place on October 14th, and we are pleased to welcome award-winning climate tech entrepreneur, Donnell Baird, CEO of Brooklyn-based Block Power. Register at fresh-energy.org/benefitbreakfast, and in case you didn't know this, when you register, you can join a Fresh Energy staff or board member's virtual table. Just click the drop down at the bottom of the registration page and click who you want to sit with virtually. I think I mentioned this last time, but if you don't know anyone at Fresh Energy, why don't you sit at my table? Just click Joe Olson in the drop down, and finally. You can support Fresh Energy's work by making a donation today. Visit our website, fresh-energy.org, and click Donate in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.